word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This our reading together from God's holy word. We're, we're studying the Alleluia Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118. It's the, the third one in that group where the Psalms either begin or end with this word Alleluia, which we properly translate praise the Lord in English. In the Psalm 115 here, the theme of false gods compared to the one and only living and true God suggests that this psalm was written at a time when God's people were exposed to great defeat or great difficulty. It was also a time when they were exposed to apparently the mocking taunts of unbelievers from verse 2. Perhaps it was the time of Babylonian exile or the time just after the Babylonian exile. But just as equally, it could be the time of the Egyptian slavery. It could be a different time. Many suggestions have been made, but isn't it true that it's not told to us because it's always appropriate? Whatever it is that we're feeling difficulty by or or feeling defeated about, this psalm tells us God's word, his answer, his call to us to trust in him. So it brings us to our main point across the top of your bulletin, Outline the Lord God calls us to see the emptiness of false gods, to place our trust in Him, to receive His blessings, and to praise Him. First, we'll see from verses 1 to 8 reasons to trust the Lord and not false gods. Second, from verses 9 through 11, the clear, strong call to trust in the Lord. And then, third, we'll see in our third point, verses 12 to the end, the Lord blesses those who trust or fear Him, and we praise Him. So, first point, reasons to trust the Lord are not false gods. There seems to be a crisis, a situation of great defeat for God's people. So verse 1 then sets the tone for the psalm by, in a time of difficulty, do you do this in your time of difficulty? Try to cry out to the Lord by asking him to rescue them. 
But the reason is not for our glory, not for our success, not for our comfort, but for the glory of his name. In addition, for the sake of his steadfast love and faithfulness. You put it all together, verse 1 reads like this, quite famously, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. If you cry that out at a time when you're facing difficulty or defeat, and you're crying for the Lord to help, to cause his blessing to rest upon us, to bring us through this time to a different day, a different circumstance. You're doing so not for yourself, but for him. Then that's a biblical prayer, and that's a prayer along the lines of Psalm 115. It sets the tone beautifully. It's a plea from hurting people to God. Be God. Go ahead and take action and save us. Bring us through this. Not for our sake, but for yours. For the sake of your steadfast love, prove it. Again, show your love. Show your chesed, the Hebrew word for steadfast love. His covenant love, as we've been studying over in Jeremiah, that you, O Lord, might show your faithfulness. You don't leave us in our troubles. You take us through to demonstrate to the world. The testimony of God is at stake. Your character is that of faithfulness. Your character is such that you won't let us down. Help us through this. Your actions on behalf of your people, will show your love. However, right away in verse 2, the concern is that if God delays, if he pauses before he acts to rescue his people, then the heathen nations might start up a chant. They might start up a taunt. They might call into question God's love and loyalty to his people. Look at verse 2. Why should the nations say, this is the people of God saying to God? Why should the nations say, where is their God? Why would you put us in a circumstance where you have not helped us long enough that the nation starts saying, where is their God? You see the argument here? It's our prayer to God saying, what about your testimony? What about your glory? What about people noticing the kind of God that you are? These sad circumstances seem to be threatened to be used by other nations to substantiate their questioning of Israel's God. The nations are questioning God's whereabouts. Where is he? You could imagine the taunt being expounded. Hello, is God over there? I don't hear anything. Hello, is God over there? I don't hear anything. You can see the ugly taunt against God's people. Where is he? Where is your God? And see, they're hinting at doubts about his existence at all. Because surely if your God existed, the God that you say you have, the God that you think you have, he would help his people at times like this. When they're needy, when they're a circumstance such as this one, they would have a God who would act on their behalf, wouldn't they? Are you sure he's coming? Are you sure he's up there? (laughs) It's the taunt, it's the mocking of the world. And again, it comes across with a simple question, where is God? Where is your God? The world says to the Christian, the psalmist promptly, ever so promptly, replies as narrator in verse 3 in order to restore God's honor and to prove God's power. He says now in verse 3, our God is in the heavens, the Christian says to the world. 
He does all that he pleases, the Christian says to himself or herself. The Christian reminds himself and herself. The Christian says to the world, our God does what he pleases. Who am I to say his timing? Who am I to say what he does in response to my plea? You'll see, he says, she says to the world, our God does whatever pleases him. I don't know how you get a bigger statement about God's sovereignty than that. He does whatever pleases him. He could let us all die and then raise us from the dead. He could deflect you right now. He could provide for us through insects. He could provide for us through changing substance of water into wine or water into blood. He's done all sorts of things. He does whatever pleases him. And he's our God, as you will soon see. The Christian's answer to the world is powerful, isn't it? Verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 4, now reminds me of the children's storybook, The Emperor's New Clothes. Everyone goes along with the official royal statement from the emperor and his team that he has a new set of clothes. Except for one child who, when the emperor is parading down the street, admits what no one else wants to say, and he says, Mommy, the emperor has no clothes, (laughs) and starts to chuckle. One child. Here in verse 4, all the nations have gone along with their own stories. This is our God. This is, that, that's your God? Those aren't real God. It looks like a bobblehead. That's not a God. What are you doing? That, you're made out of silver. Great. I mean, it's expensive. Made out of silver. Okay. That's not a God. It was a child of God who admitted what none of the nations wanted to say. Israel couldn't, I mean, Babylon couldn't say it. Egypt couldn't say it. Assyria couldn't say it. Actually, those... Idols are fake gods. They're dead. What are you doing? You can't win with that God protecting you. Verse 4 reads like this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Duh. (laughs) The Christian looks at the gods of the world and says, that's silly. Let me expound. Israel's eyes have been opened to the futility of man-made gods, whether Egyptian, Philistinian, Assyrian or Babylonian, all those gods and all the threats of those nations appeared ridiculous in their total uselessness. The following list is humorous in its litany of facts, starting in verse 4, that all the false gods are made by human hands. The laughable consequence of having something made by human hands is it couldn't possibly be God. I'll give you a list. Verse 5, having mouths that don't speak, eyes that don't see. Verse 6, ears that don't hear, noses that don't smell. Verse 7, hands that don't feel, feet that don't walk, and throats incapable of even making such a sound as clearing one's throat. They just sit there like cute little statues. The point is driven home by two parts of verse 8. First part, that the people who make such idols become like those idols spiritually. They have to, at some point in the process of making this idol, lose part of their humanity their ability to think and realize, if I can make this, it didn't make me. If I can make this, it's not going to save me. If I can create this, it's not the creator. They lose that part of their own thinking process and they become like the idols, having brains but don't think, having eyes but don't see. You don't see anything. Verse 8, first half makes that point and in the the Um, spiritual realm, rather than being useful persons full of life, these idol makers become as dead as their dead idols. And the second part of verse 8 brings up the issue of trust, one of the main thrusts of our psalm, trust. 
the spiritually dead worshipers of these idols have made a spiritually fatal error of putting their trust in such dead idols that ought to look to them like bobbleheads. Those who trust in these idols are also spiritually dead, just like the idols are. What abundant clarity there is in God's word. We move to the second point, verses 4 to 8, set up well for it. Our call to trust in God in verse 9. O Israel, O the people of God, trust in, instead of those idols, trust in the Lord. It's God who calls on the people of God to forsake any remaining hankering after these false gods and instead to commit themselves wholly to the Lord. Look at all the expense that Babylon would have put in, all the time, all the public attention, all the public ceremonies they would have put in to worshiping this false god. It's kind of hard for you, just in a few statements from a psalm, to turn away from that whole way of life and that whole way of thinking. Start now, make the decision, trust in the Lord. And on your way, more and more wholly commit yourself to the Lord and him alone. Since reasons were given for not trusting in false gods, how about we now give reasons to trust the true God? Reasons one and two. He's their help, number one. He's their shield, number two. Let me ask you this, Assyria. Let me ask you this, Mr. or Mrs. Babylonian. Let me ask you this, young Egyptian. Have you ever turned to a false god and received help? Have you ever turned to one of your false gods and asked them to shield your nation from the oncoming attack and they actually did it? Have you ever been shielded by this god? Now look at the answers to that in contrast to what Israel can report. Israel has often, through its whole history, been helped and shielded by the Lord, the one true and living God. Verse 10, now call to the religious leaders, the priests, O house of Aaron. Now you hear, in verse 10, what the whole of Israel has already heard in verse 9. And then verse 11, we're calling to anyone else. Those of you outside of Israel, Anyone, anywhere, foreigners in the world, if you fear this God, if you've seen or known anything about the Lord God of Israel and you are moved about him, go ahead and put your whole trust in the Lord as your God too. The foreigners receive the exact same invitation in verse 11 as the people of God receive in verse 9 and the priests of God receive in verse 10. Trust in the Lord. He is the help, and the shield for you. There is no other God. That's what we say in missions. We go to them and they already thought of religion. They're well steeped in their religion. They're super committed to their religion wherever we show up in all nations of the world. It's not like they have no religion. They have religion. They're just worshiping the wrong God. And we say to them, that's not a God at all. It doesn't exist. There's one true and living God and I'd love to tell you about him. That's what missions is. It's time to commit trust in the Lord, the Lord. And there's solid reasoning. He's your help. He's your shield. We can tell the Old Testament stories. We can tell the cross story. We can tell all the stories of the church. But it's time to jump on this offer. It's an offer from the living God to you. Let's review the offer. The offer is given to suffering people. So you go on the missions and you you find suffering people. You go to your neighborhood, you find suffering people. What do you say to suffering people? Verse 1, the Lord has glory. 
the Lord has steadfast love and faithfulness to us. Verse 2, why should we let the nations say that we have no God when we actually do have a glorious God filled with love and faithfulness? Verse 3, our God exists. Oh, does he ever exist. He's alive and well. He's in the heavens. He has the ability to do anything and everything that pleases him. Verses 4 to 8, trusting in any other God is as silly and foolish as it could possibly be, and it all leads to death for you. Verses 9 to 11, trust in the Lord. He's your help. He's your shield. He's pleading with you and commanding you to trust in him. What exactly is the holdup? This is the best offer you got. That's the review of what we're facing in this chapter. And then all we have is verses 12 to 18 as we go to our third point. The Lord blesses those who trust and fear him, and we end up praising him. Starting at verse 12, now going to the end of the psalm, there's encouragement for those of us who have committed, those of us who are believers, those of us who have decided, yes, I'm going to take this offer. Yes, I'm going to trust in the Lord as my God. If we have decided to heed the call of God, to trust in the Lord, then we can be counted as his people. And then something changes for us. When we read this next verse, verse 12, we read the word us, and we are included in that group by faith. Verse 12, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. I'm in that group by faith. You're in that group by faith. If you've trusted in him, you're a believer, and you're in the us. He will bless us. Who else? The house of Israel, the people of God. The house of Aaron, the priests. Who else? Verse 13 answered, those people in the faith community, those people who trust God, those people from any nation, any background, who fear, have deep respect for the Lord God. Who else? I want you to see the end of verse 13. So encouraging. Who else will he bless? Who else does he remember? Both the small and the great. Let's unpack that a little bit. Let's say nobody's ever heard of you. Let's say nobody's ever going to hear of you. They're not going to write books about you. A hundred years, they're not going to be writing history about you. You're a little person like me. Small people. Not the big name believers. Not the Noah. Not the R.C. Sproul. The little people. People with little responsibility, people with little visibility. Not just the people with big responsibility and big visibility. Whoever you are, wherever you are, as unknown as you are to the world in any generation, when you entrust yourself and you entrust your life, your present and your future, into the hands of the Lord God, your needs are met and your safety is secured. He has news for you. He will remember you, and he will bless you. Who is this that we're talking about? We are talking about the one who, in verse 15, made heaven and earth. That's the one who is remembering you. That's the one who's blessing you when you answer his call to trust in him and him alone. Verse 14 shows the community starting to act like a community already. The psalmist is renewed in the spirit of prayer for others. The author now says to everyone who's joined in, in the new group of trusting in the Lord, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. Can I get an amen from parents and grandparents? 
Is anybody concerned about this generation and stuff happening around us and in the news for our children and our grandchildren? We need to soak ourselves in the word of God where it says, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. This is a covenant God, a covenant-keeping God, and this is what we already are involved in the moment we trust in him. It's a prayer that the Lord will grant all believers an increase, increase of faith, increase of blessings, increase of shielding, and to their children an increase of help and safety by the loving and faithful God. Verse 15 bases the praying of believers for one another on the reminder of the ability of the Lord God that we're talking about. He's capable of shielding you. He's capable of blessing you. He's capable of granting the request to increase you and to increase your children. In the sharpest contrast possible to the false gods we studied in verses 4 to 8, and in answer to the potentially taunting nations of verse 2, the Lord God is now presented as the one who is so capable of blessing you that he is the very one who made the heavens above. And by the way, he made the earth the place which all of us currently call our home. Verse 16, the Lord our God is not only concerned about his home in the heavens, but our home on earth too. He has given the earth to the children of man for our stewardship and for our keeping and for our enjoyment. The God of heaven has committed himself to blessing us here on earth and helping us and shielding us. Why would the God of heaven do this? Verse 17 shows the answer. So that we would praise him. Not idols, not ourselves, not one another, that we would praise him. Verses 17 and 18 together. The dead do not praise the Lord. Spiritually dead and those who've died, they don't praise the Lord. Nor do any who go down into silence. But we will. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The conclusion of our psalm reveals a lot. It shows that as God looks down from heaven, he sees two different kinds of people. That's it, just two kinds of people. The dead and we the living. The spiritually dead and we who are alive spiritually. Those who trust in dead idols and have become like them and those who trust in the living Lord God of love, the God of heaven, and trust in him. Those who become like the dead idols and those who bless the Lord. Those who mock God and question his existence. And those who fear and respect him. Those who are silent. And those who praise God. Those who make idols. And those who use their strength and creativity to serve the Lord God while on this earth. Those who will be dead forever. And those who are alive from this time forth and forevermore, verse 18. Those who go down into silence, forgotten, and those whom the Lord remembers, those whom the Lord blesses, those whom the Lord helps, and those whom the Lord shields. And so the invitation is repeated. The last three words of our psalm is actually one word that we've come to know already in our short study of these beautiful psalms. The invitation is repeated. Alleluia. It's an invitation. Praise the Lord. Come on in. We're invited in verses 9 through 11 to trust in the Lord. Now we're invited in verse 18 to bless him and to praise him. Why has the God of heaven so blessed us? 
so that we could live to praise him now and live eternally to praise him in the future. That's it. And it's a beautiful train to be on. It's a pile of blessings, one after the other. The dead don't know this. The dead all around you, your fellow citizens, people in your classes, people in your workplace, people you see as you go up and down the streets and highways, they don't praise the Lord. Nor do any who go down into silence, those who've already died, without faith in God, silence from them. During the ancient times, when this psalm was written, very little was revealed from God for what happens after people died. Death at that time was seen as a place of darkness and a place of silence. And Christ came and conquered death for us by taking our sins upon himself on that cruel cross, as you well know. He entered the realm of the dead for us and exited the realm of the dead in his resurrection. So when we talk about this going down into silence, going on down into whatever they could understand about the realm of the dead, Jesus had a full tour. He entered the realm of the dead and exited the realm of the dead in his resurrection. He returned to the realm of the living on earth in order to give out his good news, to give out his blessings, to give out his covenant love and faithfulness. And then he ascended from earth back to heaven And all the time from then till now, Jesus has been preparing a place for believers to be with him in heaven. John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. John 14, 3. Through trusting in the Lord, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the glorious certainty of being transported out of this place into another sphere in which we will not be silent because we will not be dead. Rather, we will live forever, constantly giving thanks and praise to our God and Savior. Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Proper praise from angels to God. Revelation seven fifteen. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Revelation seven fifteen. It's a call to trust in him. We who trust in the Lord, who respect and fear the Lord God, We'll be blessed forever. We will return, return his blessing by blessing him back and praising him forever. That's our psalm. What have we seen? The Lord God calls us to see the emptiness of false gods, to place our trust in him, to receive his blessings, and to praise him. It's fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for us. Number one, reasons to trust the Lord and not false gods. We saw verse 9 through 11, the clear call to trust in him. And we saw the Lord blesses those who trust and fear him. And so we praise him back in verses 12 to 18. I have two conclusions for you, pretty simple. The first one is the title of the psalm, the title of the sermon. Trust in the Lord. Because it's the main thrust, isn't it, of Psalm 115? A clear, simple, straightforward, deeply profound, necessary call for us to trust in the Lord. 
The Lord our God is so glorious. There was never more than one good image of the Lord on earth. That image was found in the person of his own dear son, Jesus Christ. And that glorious and perfect Jesus is the very one who was then sacrificed unto death in order for us to be saved and join with the Lord in his heaven so that we can receive this call to trust in him and answer the call to trust in him. Listen once more to these central verses, 9, 10, and 11. Listen for something to be repeated three times. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. We're told three times to trust in the Lord. If God tells us something once, we should listen very carefully. It's the living God saying something. And if our God says it a second time, we should pay strict attention. And if our God deems it necessary and important to say it a third time, we should drop everything else that we're doing, give our full attention to it, study it to understand it correctly, ponder it, memorize it, keep it before us, joyfully do, receive, and obey whatever it is that God has said to us three times over. Trust in the Lord. Because trusting anything else is disappointing. The idols are nothing, and they can do nothing for us. Trusting in the Lord is never disappointing. Because the Lord our God lifts us up when we're hurting. The Lord our God helps us in our weakness. The Lord our God shields us from those who would hurt us. Trust in the Lord for your salvation, of course. We don't expect God to recognize our efforts, our motivations, our intentions, our accomplishments, our contributions, our merit. Of course. None of that will result in us entering God's presence in heaven. The only thing that results in us joining God in his heaven is trusting in the Lord, Jesus Christ alone, through his grace alone, through faith alone, that the Lord died and rose again in order to provide us with the blessing of his forgiveness and perpetual blessings, all undeserved. This is true for all believers, small and great, whether you're educated or not, whether you're poor or not. It's true for all God-fearers from any place on this planet, whether you're respected in your own eyes or not, whether you're respected in the eyes of others or not. It's true for those who are overlooked, those who are mistreated, those who are neglected, even abused, and persecuted. God's keeping track and pays exact attention to everything that's happening and will render his answer for our brothers and sisters persecuted around the world. This is what it means when he said in verse 13, I will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and Great, and we also trust in the Lord as death approaches. If you're trusting the Lord, then you know that the one who's been faithful to you throughout your life will bless you in your final hours. He'll bless you and not abandon you as you experience more and more problems with aging. And he will not abandon you in your final days or in your last hour. The Lord your God will draw closer to you and bless you and help you, and shield you 
Trust in him to do so. Trust in the Lord. That's our first and our second and last. Praise him. It's the Alleluia. It's the last part of the psalm. It's the Allelu from all these Allelu psalms. Praise him. Join the song. Be vocal. Don't be silent. The opening of the verse has the atmosphere of requesting God for a great rescue, as I covered. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. But then the psalm ends with, Alleluia, praise the Lord. We ask him to help us for his name's sake, and he does help us, and at the end we say, Alleluia. And we could go back and start over again at the beginning once he rescues us. Not to us, O Lord, we didn't accomplish this. To your name alone give the glory. We never take credit for our successes and our accomplishments, you see. I want to tell you a story before I close. In the year 1415, don't go to sleep because I said the year 1415. Okay, I know you don't like history necessarily as Americans. It's a good story. 1415, the English army battling the French army. The English army was small. A lot had died through disease. And they tried to withdraw, but they were blocked off. They had to take a stand right where they were and fight best they can. Odds are against them. Imagine the scene and attitude of the victorious British army who then won a surprising and inspiring victory. I mean, this victory was one of England's most celebrated victories and was perhaps one of the most important English triumphs that happened during the Hundred Years' War. Perhaps the most notable example of a last stand of heavily outnumbered forces resulting in an outright victory anywhere in history. It forms the background of a Shakespearean play written 184 years later called Henry V. This victory continues to be celebrated by Brits and perpetually fascinates scholars and the general public down to today. But all that's not why I'm telling you. Imagine the scene and attitude of the victorious British army having just won that surprising victory right after that win called the Battle of Agincourt. The king of England immediately gathered the whole army of England, immediately, for a victory ceremony right on the battlefield. As a part of the ceremony, the army was hushed in order to listen to the singing of Psalm 114 and 115 together, both psalms. And what the army didn't know is that when they got to verse 1 of Psalm 115, the king ordered the entire army to kneel in the thick mud and sing along in Latin, joining and giving one voice to these words, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. It can be used as a cry to God to save us in times of difficulty, and it can be used again when he does save us through a time of difficulty. It can be used as a cry for him to save us spiritually. It can be used as a cry to him after we've been saved spiritually. We've been given victory over sin and death and the devil, but it's not by our efforts. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we keep on remembering all of this is a gift from God. All of our victories, all of our Christian walk is from him as a gift and we praise him for it. The dead cannot sing God's praises. The wicked will not sing his praises. The careless don't sing his praises. But as verse 18 says, we will. We will shout the Alleluia and we will sing praise the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, enable us to trust.